If you would take your Bible, look back in the Gospel of Mark, okay? I want to take us there to the, to the Gospel of Mark and uh, look at that passage there at the end of Mark chapter 4. Last week we were in Mark chapter 6. I decided to do something in Mark 6 after he fed the 5,000. And then he calmed the storm in Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52, where he walked on water. And I thought I would maybe be consistent with that theme and take you back to a little storm theology on what that means for us. And so I've titled the message today, The Trial of Faith in the Perfect Storm. The trial of faith in the perfect storm. And it's a wonderful passage tucked in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Let me go ahead and read that text to you. And then we will, as we do every Sunday, exposit from it. Looking at each verse, each line is what we do. Uh, We teach the Bible here week in, week out. We'll continue to do that. But look what it says there. On that day, 435, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But it was, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey them? Now, here the disciples are faced with a trial of faith in the perfect storm. And I say trial of faith because he said in verse 40 40 to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, as we walk into this passage in Mark 4, 35 through 41, let me just set the context for you briefly. If if you're studying your Bible and you're studying the gospel of Mark, in Mark 45, verse 35, all the way down through chapter 5, verse 43, there are four great miracles there that display the deity, the power, and the authority of the Son of God. That's why they're there. They display His deity, His power, His, his authority. In fact, in 435 through 41, we'll look at that. He has power or authority over the deep. When you get to chapter 5, verse 1 through 20, he's got power over the demons. As they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a demon-possessed man came up to him. Okay, But he's got power over the deep. He's got power over the demoniac. In 5, 21 through 34, he healed the woman that had been bleeding with hemorrhage for 12 years. He had power over disease. And in that same passage in 535 through 43, he has power over death. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. So as you just look ahead and read, you've got here a storm no fisherman could control, a demoniac who comes out of the tombs that no man could contain. Then you have a disease that no doctor could cure. And then you have death that no priest could conquer except for Jesus Christ. And so the authority displayed in the miracles are vivid realities of Mark 1.14, that the kingdom of God is at hand, and it's vivid in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, these disciples, as you think about them and as you think back in your reading, I mean, they're a privileged group of men, are they not? I mean, you just think of the privilege to walk and talk with Christ and dine with Christ and to see what they saw with their eyes. Yet, in Mark's gospel, to be frankly blunt, only the demons know who he is until the very end. And Mark's really clear. They've got an ideal of him, the men, the disciples. They've got a picture of him. But only the demons are the ones who say, we know who you are. 
Is it time now for you to destroy us? You are the Holy One of God. In fact, often in Mark's gospel, the disciples, as well as others, are puzzled. So I'm asking you this morning, as we look into Mark, who exactly is Jesus Christ? And what we're going to do is answer that question this morning. And before us in this text are five scenes, if you will, that display the deity of Christ over nature. I say over nature, he's going to calm the storm. Okay? Five scenes that display the deity of Christ over nature. And the implications for you, for my life, are staggering. Okay? And so what I'm going to do, and then I'm going to move through our text pretty quick. Okay? And then hopefully, fairly quick, I'm going to give you the intent of the passage. And then secondly, I'm going to give you the implications of the passage. Why did Mark include it? What's the intent? And then secondly, what are the implications for your life today? Okay, he calms the storm. He did that, but obviously it's not just a historical account. There's implications for you this morning. You're here. You're listening. You're studying. You've got, in this sense, if I just kind of spiritualized it, storms in your own life. And I don't want, think that's wrong to make that analogy. I'll take you to places where the storms and that language was used to talk about the trials of life. So five scenes. The first scene is this, the fast exit. The fast exit. Look at that opening phrase there. It says this, on that day when evening had come. Stop there just for a second. On that day, you might ask, well, what day? Well, we're in chapter 4. That's a chapter, not a day, but it's the day of chapter 4. In fact, if you go back to chapter 4.1, he began in 4.1 to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat in on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. It's that day. The day that he was pushed out because of the crowd, he's in a boat, okay? You could see it. The whole crowd is beside on the sea of the land. And he began, look at 4.2, to teach them many things in parables. And he was teaching them. And then, as you know, he talked about the sower went out to sow. And he began to give that lesson on the sower and the seed. When you get to chapter 10, excuse me, verse 10, he was alone and those around him, the 12 asked about the parables. And then he began to privately interpret the parables to the disciples. You continue on in chapter 4, he taught them at verse 21, the lamp under a basket, that it doesn't need to be hidden, it needs to be put out. Then he told them about the parable of the seed growing in the kingdom of God in verse 26. Is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. And kind of amazing, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He does not know. And he's teaching them the, the picture there that the kingdom of God will be growing. And it's growing in our church. It's growing with the people who are going to be baptized. Little by little, in every way, as the word is soaking in, people are coming to Christ. Families are coming to Christ. God's kingdom is being built in this place. God's kingdom was being built in Albania. And it kind of grows overnight. It grows when you go to sleep and you come up. And then you see it come up, but it doesn't grow in the way that sometimes we think it was. But he talks about that. And then he talked about, in verse 30, the parable of the mustard seed. You get the idea. He's teaching, okay? And so he's preaching. He's interpreting these parables privately. It's a full day. So look back at the text again in 435. On that day, but the next phrase is this, when evening had come, okay? Now, I just want you to make sure that you see the link here between the link of the day of the teaching and what we might call the furious storm is this, is that the master teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not done with the disciples yet. And he's not done with you. He's working on them, and he's working on you. And I fully think these disciples are believers, but they don't quite always see clearly who he is. And neither do we. And so here he's on that same day, it's night, and he's going to give them a little pop quiz. And maybe our Lord is giving you a pop quiz. Maybe you wouldn't say it's a pop quiz. Maybe the trial you're going through is a deep, deep trial and a deep test. We'll call that the MCAT for medical school, okay? But let's see what they have grasped. And so here's what we might call storm theology 101. 
So it's on that day in the night. Look what he says to them back in verse 35. Let us go across to the other side. You say, why does Jesus want to go to the cross on the other side? Excuse me, cross to go to the other side? Well, we don't know why. It could be that as the crowds pressed him at the end of chapter 4, that he wanted to just get away from the very, very, very busy day. He had been teaching, and often in the Gospels, he seeks to get some time alone, either to pray with his father or to train the disciples. We don't quite know that. Certainly, if you look at the text, the other side here in 5.1, they came to the other side, and by the way, they got to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out on the boat, immediately there met him, uh, you know, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And as soon as he arrives on the under other side he meets that demonic man whom no one could contain so it could be we don't quite know if he's just tired he's going to the other side and he wants to take the disciples to retreat from the crowds it could be that they were busy it could be that he purposefully went to the other side because he wanted to get to this demonic man it could be in mark 138 that he simply wanted to go somewhere else to preach the gospel that's the reason that he came and so they get in the boat and they're going to get on the Sea of Galilee. I'll be and will be, some of you, on the Sea of Galilee in January. Now, we call it the Sea of Galilee, which isn't really a sea. It's a lake. I think you know that. It's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's really just a lake. And the Sea of Galilee, Galilee is about 13 miles long, and it is about 8 miles wide, okay? And so maybe he wants to get in this boat to go to the other side because he wants to get away. There's fewer people. Maybe he wants to physically rest. Maybe he, he gave himself spiritually. But I just want you to know here on this fast exit, Look what he says, though, in verse 35. Let us go across to the other side. In other words, there is a note of urgency, at least in the language. In other words, after he finished that day, he said, let us go. And the thought is, let us go now. They make a rather abrupt, quick exit. Look at the text in verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him, Jesus, with them in the boat. Just as he was. In other words, some people believe that he was already in the boat, pushed off, teaching the crowds. And he said, let us go to the other side. So they took him, Jesus, with them in the boat. He's already in the boat. They took him just as he was. And there were other boats with him. And so without any provision, the thought is, immediately the boat pulls away in the quiet calm of the evening. They make, our principle, a fast exit. And then, in the account, kaboom, out of nowhere, look at verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up. And so I take you from the fast exit to the second scene is the furious storm. The furious storm, unexpectedly, a great windstorm Arose. Now, you remember in the other account in Mark 6, he went off to pray and saw them straining at the oars. This account is different. He's not off the side praying. He's now in the boat with them. And there was a furious storm. When you get out to the Sea of Galilee, it's really kind of a fascinating place. If you can just picture a ball is what it sits in. And what's amazing is that the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below seawater. So it's a very interesting place. It's kind of sea level, if you will. It's below at about 700 feet. And then rising up out of the Sea of Galilee is a place called Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is about 9,000 feet in the air. And so you've got this lake, the Sea of Galilee, that sits in a ball, and it's below sea level, if you will, okay? And then on the other side, it rises up about 9,000 feet. And what happens on this lake, and maybe it will happen when we're there, this wind just rushes down from some of these cliffs, and it comes at kind of a quick pace right down the side. And then the water, the warm water, just kind of heats up at the, the lakeside or the seaside. And as it comes up and the winds come down, it can create a tremendous, Mark says here, a great windstorm, okay? In fact, so great was it. Look at it in verse 37. The waves were breaking into the boat and the boat was filling up. 
I mean, it was like a hurricane. I, I don't even know if I could quite grasp the destructive power of this kind of, I call it a tsunami. I mean, they're out there, they kick off in the, in the evening, early evening, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's a furious storm. These winds collide, and the waves are breaking into the boat. The boat is filling up. Matthew, in his gospel, in the parallel account, calls it seismos. In other words, it was like an earthquake. In other words, they're out on the land, Jesus is in the boat with them, and it was like a seismos, but I call it a sea quake to describe the storm. I mean, this little sea, it's not a big place, was violently being shaken. In fact, Luke captures it in his gospel and says that it kind of just swooped down on the lake, and that's how it is. So imagine they kick off from one side of the Sea of Galilee, they get out, now it's nighttime, and this furious storm just kicks up. And you say, well, what what is Jesus doing in this? Well, look at the text in verse 38. He was in the stern, that's boat language, some of you get that, it just means he's in the back of the boat. And by the way, about 1986, they unearthed one of these boats, and, um, and they unearthed it, it was in the kind of the mud by the Sea of Galilee and kind of constructed what that boat would see. I've seen that boat. It's kind of interesting. They kind of showed it what it looked like and about how long it would have been, probably about four and a half feet off the ground, about um, 13 feet in length. And they said, and then they did the carbon 14 dating on all of it. And they said that this is probably the type of boat that Jesus would have used. They don't know that that's the boat. And they dated it and so forth by what they do. And they said it comes around anywhere from about 120 BC um, or excuse me, AD to about 30. And they said this was probably what it was like. He put all the disciples into the boat. He got them out onto the sea. They meet this furious storm. And Jesus is in the back. He's in the stern of that boat asleep. It says, look at verse 38, on a cushion. Now, the word there for cushion is it just means a pillow. Now, stop there just for a second. This is remarkable to me as the storm itself. I mean, Jesus Christ in his humanity must have been utterly exhausted so as to sleep so soundly in light of such a furious storm. And I think here there's just a glimpse of Mark the writer of his humanity. He's fatigued, he's tired, he's weary, he's asleep. In fact, when you begin to look at all the details, Mark, right, gets his account from an eyewitness. We believe that eyewitness was Peter. And so here, Mark's writing, because he's writing under Peter's observation, Jesus was asleep. I mean, amazing, is it not? In fact, I, you know, sometimes you can get so tired in your humanity. I was in the 19... 94 earthquake. Now, some of you haven't been in an earthquake, and you don't want to be in one of those earthquakes in L.A. You'd, be, you'd rather live in the San Joaquin Valley. Do they have earthquakes here? I, I don't know, but I was in that big one, and I was in the one back in the Silmar one. When was that? Back in 71 or 2, and man, I could barely run out of my room because that earthquake was going side to side. I was running into walls. I had bunk beds with my brother, and my brother thought I was kicking him from the bottom, which I like to do, but I wasn't. It was an earthquake. The one in 94 wasn't going like this. The one in 94 was going vertical. The little condo we lived in was just being shook like a rag doll. And if you've never been in one of those, I hope you never are in one of those. It is one of the most, you're just woken 431 out of the morning. This thing is, just, and I'm gathering my kids. I'm looking for my kids. My wife's looking for our kids. And we get everybody huddled under a little uh, uh, doorway there. We didn't know what to do. I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's just like if you took like a, a little toy and you were going like this, that's, and, I, and I all of a sudden, where's Kyle? Where's Kyle, my little boy? He wasn't with us. And I go in. And he had all these stuffed animals above him, and they all fell on him, and I couldn't find him. And I'm just talking, talking, where is he? And he was asleep, okay? And I thought, there's a little kid. He didn't even wake up. I had to get him out of his crib, wake him up. He didn't even know what was going on. And, and I thought, it's the sleep of, of a child. And here is Jesus, though God himself, in his utter humanity, in this furious storm, sleeping here in this stern. I mean, this is amazing. He is God. He is controller. He is creator of the universe. And yet, 
He's asleep on a pillow in the back of the boat. You say, well, what did the disciples do? Well, look, it's in the text in verse 38. He was in the stern asleep on a cushion, and they woke him and said to him, now you've got to see, this is, you're reading it with me. It's a cry of desperation. Teacher, do you not care that we are, what? Perishing. I mean, th- 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 this is desperation. Teacher, master, they're different accounts. Lord, don't you care We're going to die. Now, you have to recognize, too, four of these men were by trade, what? Fishermen. Probably seven of them is what I think. So these aren't like milk toast dudes. These are brawny dudes that were made for this. But I'm telling you, they've never seen anything like it in their life. This wind came up, and I'm telling you, the Lord dialed up the storm. See, they've never been in anything like this. They're not just straining at the oars, Mark 6. They're going to die. And they go to Jesus in a cry of desperation. I think Campbell Morgan, the commentator, got it right. He said in his old King James, he said, When they said, Carest thou not that we are perishing? Here's what Morgan said. They are not protesting against him for being careless. They were protesting his lack of concern in view of the fact that they were all going to perish himself among the number. Camel might be right. They thought Jesus was going down. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to have to throw him, throw him a life jacket? I mean, right there in that moment on the Sea of Galilee, it is pandemonium, okay? I mean, they are panicked. They are, I don't know how to describe it. They're petrified. We're going down. Say, what would Jesus do? Well, look at the text. Verse 39. Here's the third scene, the fabulous miracle. From the fast exit to the furious storm to the fabulous miracle, they awoke, or he awoke, and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Incredible. Unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, he goes from sound asleep in his humanity to demonstrable power in his deity in a split second. He's asleep in the back. They wake him up. Master, we're, we're, gonna, we're going down, and you're going down, even though he's the creator of the world. You're going down, right? And then he wakes up, and then look at the text in 39. Interesting. I love these little phrases. He rebuked the wind. And, you know, the, the word there, if you get the idea... It's the same word used in Mark 1.25 when he rebuked the demon. So watch this. He's got power over the demoniac. He just silenced him. The demon was just, you know, he's just, be silent. I think he said it with a note of authority. That's what I believe. I wish I could have been there. I don't know if he just said chill or, I mean, he didn't say chill. He said, be silent. And here when he got up on this, he rebuked the wind. In other words, he, re- he silenced it as the thought. In other words, the wind is, I mean, it's filling up. They're going to die. And he just rebuked the wind and he, he muzzled it as the thought. Hush, be silent. And he said to the sea here in verse 39, be still. In other words, he ordered the wind and the sea. He said, well, what happened? Well, you read it. Look at it in 39. And the wind ceased and there was a great, what, calm. Imagine being there with the disciples from the violence of the thundering winds to the crashing waves to an absolute dead calm. Now, listen, the wind and the sea became perfectly calm. The wind and the sea recognized the voice of their creator. Do you? Do you? All he had to do was say, hush, be still, and it became perfectly. Because he created them. And so part of it is, do you recognize that? And the wind and the waves suddenly stopped. Now, this is kind of bizarre. Like you would think if if he said, be silent, it just kind of rippled down. You you know, like if it it just kind of died down. But that's not what the text says. He said, be still. Be silent. He rebukes the wind, and it went from shh to just like that. 
In other words, there's not rippled effect here before the calm. The wind and the sea became perfectly calm at the command. And so they go from the panic of a tsunami to water as smooth as butter, if you will. He stopped the storm, listen, with one simple command. Or to put it in another way, millions of gallons of water moving just stopped at a word. And the wild storm was now just a freaky calm. Man, if I'm there in that boat, I just think it got super eerie right on the boat. Do you? I mean, if I'm out there and I'm just thinking and I saw that, man, it just would have got super eerie right there on that. Now, after he performed that miracle, I wish I could tell you otherwise. And the last two verses are so key. It leads to the fourth scene, their faithless hearts, their faithless heart. Look at verse 40. He did the great calm and he said to them, why are you so what? Afraid. Tremendous questions dwell on this. And and have you still no what? Faith. Two questions to the disciples. Why are you so afraid? In other words, you could say it this way. Why are you so cowardly? Why are you so fearful? I mean, these disciples, <laughs> I don't want to put myself past that. I mean, they're having an emotional meltdown. How is it that you have no faith? Now you think, well, should they have faith? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. They were in the synagogue that day when the guy comes up with a withered arm, okay? And he said, stretch out your arm. And he stretched out his arm and it was healed. They saw that. They saw when they went into the house and Peter's mother-in-law was burning with a fever and he just said, be healed. And she was healed of her fever and began to serve them right on the spot. They were there earlier in Mark's gospel where he walked into a city and he just healed the whole city. And then they were there when he cast out demons in the temple and he muted that demon. And then they were there in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus is teaching and the roof starts coming apart and they drop the paralytic and he said, my son, your sins are what? Forgiven. And remember the Pharisees were grumbling. Who can forgive sins but God alone. And then he says, in order that you may know that I have the power and that I am the son of man, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and walk. And that man on the pallet rose, took up his pallet and walked. And the greater miracle was not here that the fact that the man walked, the greater miracle was the fact that Jesus Christ forgave his sins. They witnessed all that stuff. Then they saw the leper come up to him. I mean, and they would walk in the city of Israel. And if somebody was a leper, they were supposed to walk through the city like this unclean, 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 unclean. Why? Because you didn't want to get down 10 feet within the leper because they believe you can catch it just through the air. So if a leper was there, and in this count, the gospel, the leper comes up and Jesus touches him. They saw all that. They saw him go from gross, I don't know, pussy skin to the skin of a baby. They saw it all. So when they get to this point, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith in spite of what you've seen? How is it that you still have no faith? And when you look at the other account, Matthew says, remember, you could finish the sentence. He said to them in this account in Matthew's gospel, oh, ye of what? Little faith. Same account. So I think they should have known. I mean, one man said, we have, I thought this was funny, the Lord High Admiral of the Sea right next to Chicken of the Sea, the disciples. Listen, the greatest danger the disciples faced was not the violent storm on the outside. It was their unbelief inside their hearts as to who Jesus really was. Now for Mark, and I don't have time on this, but Mark, fear is always the opposite of faith. Where there's fear, faith is out the window. Where there's faith, then there's no fear. So here's the scenes. You got a fast exit. You got a furious storm. You got a fabulous miracle. You got a faithless response. And then the final scene, and I think it's the most crucial. I'll call it the fearful question. The fearful question. Look at it in 41. A fearful question. It says, <laughs> they were filled 
Dominated is the thought. Not with the Spirit, but filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, they were awestruck. Now, you just, you know, maybe this is just me. You're, you're trying to read that. I used to read that as a young man, and they thought it was cool. Who then is this? I mean, this is awesome. No, 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 no. That's not the thought. It's not that this was awesome. In fact, they didn't say, Jesus, that's really sweet what you did. They didn't come up to Jesus after he calmed the storm there and hug him. They didn't turn to each other and just give a high five and forearm. They didn't do any of that stuff, okay? They're awestruck. They just witnessed a violent storm, but, and, and they've been in storms before, okay? But they had never been on the sea and seen such a supernatural display of power over the forces of nature, okay? Amazing. Now, let me just expand this just, just for a little bit. Look at verse 41. They were filled with great fear. Now, you'll note in verse 40, he said to them, why are you afraid? And then the New American Standard says in verse 41 that they were very much afraid and said to one another. Now, the the thing that I want to point out to you, I don't know if it's that big of a deal, although to me it seemed like a big deal because especially because the new american standard said why are you so afraid and then in verse 41 they were they were very much afraid but i want you to know that those words are different okay in verse 40 you see and i'm reading the word why are you so afraid that's the greek term deloy okay and being afraid there in verse 41, excuse me, verse 40, arose, if you will, just from the anxiety of the storm. However, in verse 41, when it says they were filled with great fear, I like the, the ESV here, the fear in verse 41 is phobos. And, you know, we use that word phobia, don't we not? Do we not? And so it's just, they were filled with a great fear. It's phobos. And that is a reverential fear because they are in the presence of something greater than the storm. They're in the presence of God who controls the storm. Now, this is just interesting. Just a little footnote here. Mark uses here in this language, megalos, three times. Megalos is just simply the Greek word for great. In fact, I'll show it to you. Look in verse 37. Here's one of them. And a great, megalos, windstorm arose. You've seen that before. Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the the wind ceased, excuse me, And verse 39, there was a great calm. There was a megalos, if you will, calm. But here's the biggest one, verse 41. And they were filled with a megalos, a great fear. Now, again, that fear there in 41 is a reverential fear in the presence, at least in the scripture, of a divine power. In fact, Luke says in his gospel that they were fearful and amazed. It is the fear in verse 41 that people experience in the scriptures when they're in the presence of God. In fact, when you see people encountering the presence of God, Isaiah, remember when the temple began to fill, he said, woe is me, right? For I am a what? A sinful man. And whenever anybody gets into the presence of God, they see their sin. I'm thinking of Peter when he saw the power of Christ when he had been out fishing all day. And then the man on the seashore said, hey, try the other side of the boat. Remember? And Peter probably went, and he threw the net on the other side. He's a professional fisherman. And he caught so many fish that the net began to break. And when he realized it was Christ, he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And here the disciples are both fearful, they're afraid because, listen, they are standing in the presence of something greater than the storm. They're standing in the presence of God himself. And I think it's fascinating that the disciples, is this true? Their greatest fear 
was not produced by the storm. Their greatest fear was produced by the calm. And so this is what fear does. Just a little point here. It always does fear maximizes the problem and then it minimizes God's presence. Fear always does that. You see the problem more than you do the presence of God and their unbelief caused their fear and their fear made them lose sight of who Jesus is. And so look at the text, 41. Let me get to the application. He says there, who then is this that even the wind and the sea, what? Obey him. And we call that, and you can see it there, a question. Who then is this, right? I mean, that even the wind and the sea obey him. And I think Mark leaves the question unanswered, right? Because you just go to five one, they came to the other side to the country of the Gerasenes. The question is unanswered, and you ask why. And here's why, I believe. I think he's inviting you this morning to answer the question. He wants you to answer the question. So he writes for us, looking back now, who is it that even the wind and the sea obey him? So let me just drive home the text here, right? It's not just a history account, though it happened. What's the intent of the author? And then secondly, what's the implication of the author? Okay, first, the intent of the author. We're always, I'm always asking that, right? Bible teachers, you know, you don't just get up and just teach the story like he's a cool guy. There's an intent of it. And we call that in the study of the Bible. Why did Mark put it here? Mark put it here for a certain point. Here's the intent of the passage. It is to say, number one, not, not numbers, but here's the intent. That Christ is very, what? God. That's the point why he wrote. That's why this is here. I mean, you do not have to be a genius to figure out this syllogism. Only God controls the weather. Jesus controls the weather. Therefore, Jesus is who? God. I mean, you don't want to miss that, Grace Church of the Valley. Listen, I can put it this way. Coaches win games. Doctors operate. Counselors help families. But listen, only God controls the weather. After he had silenced the demon in Mark chapter 1, they said, what is this? A new teaching. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Why do the unclean spirits obey Jesus? He is God. Jesus forgave the paralytic of his sins. Who can forgive sins? Only God. Okay? Now, listen just for a second, though. And I won't turn you there. Time's always of essence, right? I always laugh because I always have to be fairly quick with you. I mean, if we're in a classroom, we could go for a couple hours. But, you know, thus this is a service. I think it's fascinating. You don't have to turn to these, but if you want to write them down, listen to what God does in Psalm 106, verse 9. Here's what it says of God. He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up and he led them through the deeps. Okay? Who did that with the Red Sea? God did that. Listen. God rebuked the Red Sea and Jesus rebuked the sea and the wind. If you believe in God, believe in his divinely appointed son, who is God in the flesh? God rebuked the Red Sea. Jesus silenced this sea. He's God. Listen to what it says of God in Psalm 104, verse 6 and 7. When it's speaking of God's work of creation, it says, The waters were standing above the mountains, and at thy rebuke they fled. Speaking of his creation, at thy rebuke they fled. Psalm 104, 6 and 7. So now, too, the waters fled at the command of Jesus. Jesus is God. He is not a prophet. He he was, but not only. He's not a guru. He's not just merely a teacher. He is God's son in the flesh. He is God incarnate. It is God in the flesh. That's what Mark wants you to see. Psalm 88, verse 8 says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you? 
You rule the swelling of the sea, and when its waves rise, you still them. Stop. Just like Jesus did. Just like, I mean, listen. This is not just another prophet according to what the Muslim says. This is God in the flesh. And maybe I should just say to you by the Spirit of God right now for all of you, have you submitted to that? That's the point of the passage. There's other things we can get. Just like when he fed the 5,000, the point of the passage was not the boy who shared his lunch. The point of the passage was only God can create ex nihilo in his hand out of nothing is what that word means. And he can just feed what we said was 25,000 people. Only God can calm the weather. Okay, and Jesus did that. I'm thinking of said the same thing and saw in Job 38. Listen, Mark writes this miracle. Okay, so that you would see what his disciples did not. Jesus is God in the flesh. Do you understand that? That's the main point. That is the main point. So but there's a second here implication. I call it that's the intent. But then there's the implications of the author. And the implication, and I just mean these are the truths that flow out of this. And as you look in other scriptures, what's the implication? Well, I put it this way in a concise statement. We are to trust him in the storms of life. We are to trust him in the storms of life. Just as those, I believe those disciples were believers. I think they had followed Christ. I think that for the most part they had left everything. They'll do that a little later in Mark. But they're in Christ, but they don't quite get it. They quite don't see it. So you got Lord High Admiral on the sea next to the chicken of the sea, even though that they've already seen all that he did. And just like us, you've come to Christ. You've got opening faith. But then he's going to test your faith and he's going to push you off in the boat. He's going to push you off into the wind. And and sometimes a lot of writers say he's going to allow the storms to come. I don't even know if I like the word allow. Kind of like God's passive in that. He sends the trials your way. He allows very well, if you want to say that word, allows those trials. Listen, and we know that God is sovereign, like Bealey said Wednesday night, but how we forget him in the face of trials. Listen, it's easy to trust God in good weather when life is good than to trust him in the middle of a storm. Have you ever felt like everything is going wrong? I got to a place last month, and it's probably just a little, it's something little, but I just thought everything was going wrong. I was at the airport on my way to Chicago for a board meeting, an important board meeting with a board that I serve on called Josiah Venture. Our team just went to Albania. Josiah Venture reaches out in 14 different countries, and uh, I'm on that board. I'm kind of like the one pastor on that board with a bunch of other businessmen. It's really fun. And, and this is a very important board meeting. Our president, Dave Patty, who's preached here, was getting off a nine-month sabbatical or study vision that we called it. And I just needed to be there. I got on the plane and um, Fresno took it down to Phoenix. And this is how my day went. I got off about 1230. My plane's at 2, supposed to leave. And then I come back. It's, not, it's delayed at 2. It's going to leave at 3. I sat there and then they said it's going to be delayed at 4. And I'm like, I got to get to Chicago. And then I came back and it was delayed to 5. And I'm like, okay, let's go. And then I get on the board. I get on the plane. I board it. We're sitting on the tarmac. Then they said, we can't go because it's such and such weather in Chicago. So I had to deboard and get off. And I'm, you know, I've been there like half the day now. And then they, they finally boarded us again. And then I sat there on the tarmac for another 45 minutes. And they said, the flight is canceled. And so I got off the plane, and they have to put you up in a hotel in Phoenix. And they said, Mr. Art Vance, we're going to route you through Dallas on the way up to Chicago. I said, great, because I, I, I was leaving a day early. The board meeting is on Thursday. So on Wednesday, I get out to the Phoenix airport, and my plane is delayed. And then my uh, plane is delayed again, and then it's delayed again. And then I finally catch it, and we go to Dallas, and I get to Dallas, and I'm making a connecting flight, and then it's delayed in Dallas, and then it's delayed in Dallas again, and delayed in Dallas again. And then, and then finally, I walk up to the, the thing at 7 o'clock at night, the next night, and it says, the flight's canceled. And I just thought, wait, Lord, you got to get me to Chicago. I really need to be there. And then they said, well, you have to go get your bags. I said, well, just uh, now I said, you know, I said I was trying to put a little pressure on him. I said, I got to get to this meeting tonight or there's no reason for me to go if I miss it. And they said, well, no, you're not going to be able to get there. I said, well, then I'm going home. 
They said, okay, Mr. Artivancy, you got to go get your bag. So I had to go find my bag. They had to go into the, I don't know, took me three hours to get the bag. But I, I was sitting there in the airport. Have you ever felt like this? I was kind of looking over like my shoulder. God, did I do something wrong? God, God, did I sin? I mean, I just thought everything was going wrong, and I was wasting all my time. So I spent all day Tuesday at the airport, all day Wednesday at the airport, and then all day, I think, Thursday at the airport, and then I got home on Friday. And I never got to Chicago, and I just thought, Lord, what, you know, I, and I, I almost just, I thought this thing is just, and I just feel like sometimes we feel like, and that's a small thing compared to what some of you got going on. You, we think we're all alone in the storm. Sometimes we feel like God's forgotten us. Sometimes it seems like he doesn't care. Sometimes it doesn't seem like he can do anything about your trial. Sometimes that storm isn't on the outside, it's on the inside in your heart. And all of your hopes and all of your dreams are dashed away. And at times it appears like the Lord's unconcerned. And we ask and we, we, we seem like we want to say, do something, Lord. Or have you ever asked that question? Why is this happening to me? Have I disobeyed you? Are you getting even with me? Do you ever think that way? Sometimes in our flesh, we think that way. Even though he gave us a son and his son died, we think that the Lord's getting even on us. And we're like, I must have done something wrong. So, I mean, I was thinking that a month ago. I was like looking over my shoulder like, like I was going to see some handwriting on the wall, you know. And I just thought, man, what have I done? And I think an author penned these words. Listen to him. He said, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. You ever feel that way? I mean, I mean the psalmist did. Why dost thou, and I'm in Psalm 1, or excuse me, Psalm 10, why dost thou stand far off, O Lord, why dost thou hide thyself in trouble? Have you ever felt that way? He's standing far off. He's hiding. The psalmist said in 35, verse 22, O Lord, do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself. It's kind of like he's saying, wake up. And he says, awake to my right and to my cause, my Lord and my God. Sometimes it just feels that way. Psalm 42, all your waves. Here's that theology. All your waves and breakers have rolled over me. Kind of a picture, just a metaphor of the waves and the breakers rolling over him. In Psalm 44, it says there, Arouse thyself in verse 23. Why dost thou sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. So here's the disciples. They lost sight not only of his person, but they lost sight of his promises. And he says, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And listen, I just want to encourage it today. I mentioned it last week. He's present in disease. He's present in, uh, you know, fortunes lost in the stock market. He's present in a marriage lost to infidelity. He's present in a kid that goes prodigal. He's present in a business that goes bad. He's present when a medical bill wipes out, wipes you out. He's present when a marriage dissolves. He's present in a financial crisis. Listen, the living one, the master, the controller of the waves and the sea, he sees you, he knows you, and he, it would even be this. He's in the boat with you, right? I, I mean, I don't want to just slide that over just as he was in the boat with the disciples, He's right there in your midst. And I'm thinking of these promises. Just listen. I say, you could write me and I'll just send you all my notes. But I'm thinking of Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear. God says, I am with you. Do not anxiously look about. I am your God. I, God says, will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Listen, don't fear. I don't know what you're facing this morning or facing this week or in the last year or maybe even the future, but don't fear. He just, he goes on to say, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not. He says, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He said in Isaiah 43, verse 1, thus says the Lord, do not fear. 
I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then it says this. When you pass through the waters, metaphorically, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He's present. That's the implication here. It says in Isaiah 44, excuse me, verse 2, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not. Listen, I can't say this for sure, but I think when Mark was writing this, Peter's eyewitness account, I think he had Psalm 107 in mind. Would you look, and we're closing with this, would you look at Psalm 107? Psalm 107 I I really believe he had this right in his mind. Psalm 107, verse 23. It's striking. Have you ever seen this before? Psalm 107, verse 23, where here it's talking about, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, and his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded, amazing, and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled, I'm thinking of the disciples, and staggered like drunken men, and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And he made the storm be, what? Still. And the waves of the sea were, what? Hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired heaven. Let them, that's you, thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Praise the Lord. Do you think Mark had that in mind? I do. I think he was thinking of Psalm 107. I pray that in the midst of these troubling times for some of you, that you will remember the intent and remember the implication.